Welcome to the Republican Professor this morning. Actually, this afternoon, let me get my time of day right. Pacific Standard Time. We have Matt Kirby with us. And Matt is joining us from Southern California, right? That's right. Here's San Diego. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm happy that you're here too. I'm in California as well. I'm in Orange County. So I'm a little bit north of you. I'm familiar you're with the, it. You're the Confederate version of us. So we're having a Southern, <laughs> we're having a Southern California gun owners dis- Second Amendment discussion today. And I'm really excited because Matt is a brother in at least three different ways, as far as I can tell. Uh, first of all, we just found out we had the same mom, which I can't believe that. I just still yeah, can't. And I, and I knew it. I freaking knew she had another family somewhere. Just all the late nights. And I, I just can't. Just kidding, mom. Just kidding. Okay. Sorry. But uh, no, uh, Matt is a veteran of the United States Marine Corps. So another military veteran. Yeah. Thank you for your service, brother. Matt uh, is from the South, which I'm not from the South, so we're not brothers in that sense. But but um, Matt is a uh, military veteran. He's a philosopher trained at Biola University's graduate program in philosophy. Um, so we'll get to that a little bit. And also um, a gun owner, a person who is adamant about protecting the second amendment would you say that's a fair characterization matt i think so yeah okay i've spent time thinking about this and and talking with people about it and advocating for it um and uh, that's why i was really interested to read this book uh because i have some interest there uh i was curious about a lot of things that dr austin had to say but yes i would agree with that characterization okay yeah you just mentioned uh dr austin you're talking about this guy? I am. God, Guns, and America. God, Guns, and America is a book. We asked him if he wanted to be on. He said he was too busy. So, I mean, we'll keep asking and we'll see if he wants to come on. I, I have a feeling Hopefully he just so. doesn't like us, but, <laughs> but I mean, that's just because I've been around Democrats for a long time. But anyway, uh, yeah, his name is Mike Austin, um, and he wrote this book, God, Guns, in America. He's actually a graduate of Biola as well, he did the philosophy program just like we did. Matt, let's uh, before we get into that, let's uh, talk about you a little bit. You grew up in the South. How come you don't have an accent? You know, I get asked that probably 90% of the time I meet people and I tell them I'm from Louisiana and I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. Other than I just never picked it up, but I have friends who sound like they could be on duck dynasty, you know? So you want me to put it on? I can, but, uh, I just never got it. I don't know. And uh, Matt, you, uh, you grew up in Louisiana. Um, you, uh, you joined the Marine reserve, Marine Corps reserve, and you end up being deployed. Tell us about your deployments where did you get deployed how long and um what was that what was that like sure. well uh i i 9-11 happened when i was a freshman in high school and i remember that very distinctly and that playing out was sort of in the background as i was graduating high school and i was starting to think more and more about joining the military and thinking it was something that i wanted to do to give back and it was a way i could serve and 
there were superficial reasons for that too. Uh, you know, I liked doing the sorts of things already that you do in the military to a certain degree. Uh, I like shooting, I like camping, you know, obviously, uh, it's not as romantic as that all the time, but, uh, nevertheless, those are some of the things that played into that. And then I felt like if I didn't do it when I was young, I would never do it. So, um, I was planning on going to officer candidate school. And so my first year of college, I was uh, at Louisiana Tech, I was training for officer candidate school pretty he heavily. And then I got a little bit impatient with the application process and decided, well, if I was going to lead, I was going to lead enlisted uh, members, then I should have some enlisted experience. And the officer selection officer did not recommend that because I think they know that what happens is people get in, they kind of have their fill and then they actually don't go to officer candidate school, which is exactly what happens to me. Uh, interestingly enough, my brother actually, my younger brother ended up becoming an officer in the Marines and, and he's out now, but, um, uh, so I got that, that, uh, officer fixed vicariously through him, but, uh, I joined, uh, and I wanted to, you know, I just felt very strongly about the fact that there were people, um, namely Al Qaeda, the Taliban, people like that, who had nothing better to do than to sit around and think of creative ways to harm innocent people. And I thought, well, the, the best way to do something about that directly would be to be in the Marine Corps infantry. So. Uh, joined at 19 after a year of college and then, uh, you know, did college throughout while I was in the reserves, but deployed to Iraq in 2007, um, the town called Barwana, which is uh, right on the Euphrates. And then uh, in 2010, went to Afghanistan. Um, and the first time uh, to Iraq, we were actually attached to a unit, a reserve unit out of Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but when we went to Afghanistan, that was our unit that actually deployed. Uh, to Helmand province uh, near South Marja area. So those deployments were mild as far as combat deployments go. They typically use, use reserve units more for security missions and that sort of thing, which is what we were doing, you know, holding a position, making sure people weren't planting IEDs around. And, um, you know, we were doing patrolling and a few raids and things here and there, but, um, you know, grateful that we didn't lose anybody on either of those deployments. Um, and, um, you know, you, you train for a certain type of job. And so there's a sort of superficial and naive frustration when you don't get to do the full extent of that job but at the same time you know i think in hindsight you're, you're grateful that you you don't have the ptsd that some people deal with or that you didn't lose buddies and things like that so um grateful for those experiences though well that's that's quite an experience yeah <clears throat> what was the weather like in iraq we were there in the winter so it actually snowed on us once which yeah, you know, of course, everybody grumbled about. We went out in the dark on a, on a patrol. It was snowing, and it hadn't snowed there in 50 years or something wow. crazy like that. And global uh, warming. So it was actually, yeah, right. it was actually quite cold. So uh, sometimes we'd go out in the middle of the night and you know sit out in the desert to watch things, and it was just this cutting uh, winter wind, you know. But uh, there were times where the weather was mild and it felt really nice, and it was actually kind of peaceful to to walk down by the Euphrates, where it's actually very lush. You know, there's desert, and then next to the river, it's all very very lush and pretty and pomegranates and everything. It was kind of nice. Wow. Um, well, what was it like in Afghanistan? What was the weather? It was hot. It was very hot. Mm -hmm. It got, you know, it was well over a hundred there. Uh, not where we were was certainly not as, as, uh, beautiful. Um, but it was right South of Marja, which is a sort of a big city there. And we were, um, trying to maintain security on a, a very large, um, it was basically a tracks through the desert, but it was a big road that they used for logistics and that, that we used for logistics. And so it was kind of an important route. Um, but we had about a kilometer and a half square area of operation for our particular platoon. And then we had other, you know, platoons strewn along the, the road. 
So we would actually do this interesting thing where we would take our, we had vehicles that we would share. So each squad would take a turn with our three, you know, armored vehicles. So we'd go out uh, to positions in the middle of the desert where it was in between where are the cameras from the different positions could see, because there were these sort of blind spots. And we would kind of coil up the, we called it the, the coil. So we'd coil up our, our uh, armored vehicles out in the middle of the desert and basically, you know, camp for a night to just to have a presence and make sure that nobody was going to be there, you know, digging bombs into the road or anything. And, uh, and those are some, some good times, you know, so like once it, once the sun, the sun went down, it was cool and you could see the stars, there's no light pollution, you know, looking at the stars with night vision was kind of cool. Um, you see a lot more than you can with the naked eye. And uh, wow. so it was hot though. So I was ready to get out of there. What did you carry? Both, both uh, deployments. What did you carry as far as weapons? The first deployment, I was the assistant gunner. So I had a, a M16 and a um, underslung grenade launcher. And then um, in Afghanistan, I was a squad leader. So I had an M4. And uh, I liked the grenade launcher, but the M4 was uh, a lot easier to carry and, and manipulate and stuff. So I like that. The squad leader has an M4, but the but everybody else has an M16. How come? <clears throat> um, typically, they give smaller weapons to people whose primary job is something else than uh, exercising a lot of firepower. Mm-hmm. So, um, for what's example, a barrel, what's machine a barrel gunners length? often. What's the barrel length on an M16? Is it 20 inches? I, I've forgotten. Something 18? like that. Maybe not 20. Yeah, that I sounds kind of long. 18, maybe. Um, yeah, I've already forgotten all that. But uh, your, your M4 was it a short barrel rifle? Uh, California, we call it a short barrel rifle, but uh, it was <laughs> it was shorter than the M16. Okay. Well, um, Matt, you came back and somehow got. Thank God, you're in one piece. Um, you came back into that too. Your mom is. She's grateful for that. Yeah. <laughs> She's still celebrating uh, the fact that I came back in one piece, as you can yeah, imagine. I can, I can imagine that. Yeah. Um, are you, uh, are you going to tell us how you got into philosophy? How did that, were you reading philosophy at all in the Marines when you were deployed on downtime? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was actually a, a really good time to get a lot of reading done because, you know, in between actually, working there was a lot of downtime and uh hurry up, I've hurry up and wait hurry up and never, wait <laughs> yes there was definitely a lot of waiting and so i read i read a lot um i got into philosophy over the years through apologetics uh, when i was in high school i went to summit and that was like it was like flipping a switch in my in my mind and my soul for um engagement with people that had different worldviews and understanding the extent to which Christianity was this rich worldview that touched all these different areas. How old were you when you went to summit? 16, I think 16 or 17. Okay. And, uh, and that whole story. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, this is a tangent, but I'll, I'll quickly back up and tell you the story of how I got to summit. Well, when I was two years old, my mom was dealing with me and my brother as babies, you know, and, and, that could be pretty mundane. So she would listen to the radio when she was at home dealing with us. She and heard Ryan is, Dobbs. This is you based based on your memory, your recollection as to as no, a no, 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 no. This is her telling me later. Oh, okay. 
Uh, All right. I got you. I was going to say, what kind of what kind of two year old do we have here? Okay. What what kind of person are you, Matt? Matt. Matt. I wish I could claim to have those sorts of powers. Uh, That would have helped me in. in, um, That would have scared. That would have scared Al Qaeda away. I could right there. (laughs) Boom. We would have won the war right there. Um, my mom heard Ryan Dobson on the radio kind of give this glowing review of, of his experience from Summit. And she, she felt so strongly about that, that when my dad came home from work that day, she said, well, I don't know where the boys are going to be when they're old enough to go to this, but if we need to sell a car to send them there, we should. So sure enough, you know, was that 14 years later, uh, she comes to me in the summer and says, Hey, uh, we want you to go to this thing. You know, it's called Summit. And, you know, typical high schooler i'm like i don't want to waste my summer doing something that doesn't really sound that exciting so i said well just give me the books i'll read the books you know she said no we really want you to go so i went and then i didn't want to leave uh Mm. i don't remember all the people who who gave lectures but i just remember thinking i I couldn't get enough of the the intellectual stimulation that i was getting um from the the lectures and the books that we were reading and coming out of there that just never went away uh so i really came out of there uh, excited about apologetics, eventually outran my apologetics training. People would ask me questions and I would get in discussions with people, you know, uh, mm-hmm. either online or in person, and I couldn't answer those. So I had to really dig into uh, getting into philosophy proper. And so once I was in the Marines, I was doing a lot of reading in philosophy, um, not really structured, you know, I would just be interested in ethics. So I'd read Kant or I'd, um, you know, be interested in, um, I don't know, something else. So I'd read some other book on that topic. But um, as I was getting ready to uh, finish up my time in the Marines and uh, graduating from undergrad, which in which I studied graphic design, uh, it occurred to me, well, if I'm so interested in philosophy, why not pursue that formally? Hmm. So I, I knew about Biola through the work of uh, J.P. Moreland, Bill Craig, um, and some of those guys. And so I figured if they're on staff there, it has to be a good place. So I ended up actually applied first to the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, didn't get in, and then applied at uh, Talbot and got in there. You got you got you applied where first? The Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. Oh, where's that at? It's in Oxford. It's uh, it was. You, so you're not you're not a Muslim. I had okay. Hold on a sec. You you're a Christian. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay, not a Muslim. Matt is not. How did I? I'm gonna have to talk to Marcy. She she put my package. She put the package together on my Marcy. Lives Could have been in. my handwriting. No, I, it's fine. It's if you were a Muslim, I was excited to have you on as a Muslim. Um, it's just, it's just gonna throw the whole interview off. Um, I have to reschedule. Okay. Well, we'll figure it out. I'll tell you what. Let's just go with it. Um, we'll keep recording. I'll talk to Marcy. Um, <laughs> All right. Sorry. So you're, uh, you're in, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Ryan Dobson. What was that? What year was that, that you were 16 and went to summit? That had to have been 2003. Was this before? Oh, so that was after nine 11. Yeah. Nine 11 happened when I was a freshman in Ah. high school. Well, you were a man when, when, uh, nine 11 happened, you were a fresh man. Very fresh. <laughs> um, I, it's funny. I, when I arrived at summit, when I was 14, Ryan Dobson was the first person I met there. 
this kid from Diamond Bar, California. That's how he introduced himself. He had bleach blonde hair, looked like a surfer, hmm. and talked like a surfer too. He had this tan, and you know how they have the bleached eyes and the, you know, just hmm. just looked like a California guy, just a typical California guy. Later, I ended up moving to California and working in diamond bar and he looked nothing like anybody else in diamond bar because they're all chinese so i guess ryan dobson was the only chinese guy running around diamond bar i don't know why he said he was from diamond bar but that's what he said maybe he didn't say he was from diamond bar but somehow i got diamond bar anyway but uh ryan dobson was yeah the first kid that i met there uh, he was right there to greet my grandpa when my grandpa pulled up and uh, so that was in 1989, a little bit before your time. Well, I think that was the time that uh, my mom was hearing that thing on the radio. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah, that would have been from him. He, he did have a positive experience there. And he had a he had a skateboard, as I recall, which did not surprise me at all. And uh, he he looked. Yeah. Anyway, so that was my first, that was my time meeting Ryan. He wouldn't remember me, but I remember so, him. Interestingly, when I w- was at Summit, I was at the campus uh, in Dayton, Tennessee, so at Bryan College, and they put us up in the, the dorm rooms there. And my roommate was Norm Geisler's nephew. I think his name was Nathan. Oh, is that uh, right? He was a little bit older than me at the time, but uh, yeah, I was thinking about joining the Air Force. And, oh. So small world. And he had a last name, Geisler? Uh, I don't remember different, different last name. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. So you got to Biola, you got into Biola and what, uh, what was your favorite class that you took in the MA philosophy program? That's tough. I would say probably philosophy of mind. I had Mm. to pick one. I probably grew the most taking symbolic logic. Uh, that was the first one that I took and Ooh, uh, ah. that was a challenging, yeah, very challenging, <laughs> Who very formative Tim event. Symbolic logic. I didn't I actually didn't realize it was an elective. I thought I, I took it. I signed <laughs> up for it. Assuming symbolic logic has got to be one of the you know requirements of this degree. And it turns out I took it and I was like, man, that was painful. And they said, actually, that was a, that was an elective. You know? <laughs> uh, I would have taken it anyway, I think, but. But it's symbol or uh, philosophy of mind, or probably uh, who taught mind? Who taught mind? JP. JP. Yeah. And who taught metaphysics? JP. Uh, Though he was, that was about the time that Dallas Willard passed away, so he was in and out um, a little bit during that time. So we had a few guest speakers, uh, Tom Crisp and some others. But um, uh, what's Tom Crisp know? I mean, seriously. A few things, apparently, according to uh, according to uh, Alvin Plantinga, he was yeah. According to Alvin, well, but what's what's Alvin Plantinga know? I know, right? I mean, I know he's rational about a bunch of stuff, but what does he know? Um, those are, these are dumb inside jokes. Okay, so that's cool. Um, so you did you take epistemology? I did. Yeah, I took that one with Tim as well. Okay. And Tim did an okay job on epistemology. Uh, just okay, yeah. How how would you know? How would you know? That's a good point. Um, that's good. Uh, anything else stand out to you from that time? 
it was it was a great time. I mean, it was a, a completely different experience than my undergraduate experience <laughs> for a couple of reasons. One, um, it was a you know small private Christian university, which automatically makes it very different than a large public university like yeah. Louisiana Tech. But in grad school too, people are typically in grad school because they want to be there. They're not just kind of uh, yeah. sliding into the next thing, which is what a lot of people do uh, for undergrad. And so everybody that I was studying with was just as excited about the material as I was. And so we would go to class and then we'd, you know, hang out later and just argue for hours about mm-hmm. the stuff that we we're learning. And I was around people and some of them are still dear friends now, but uh, that were way smarter than I was. And so those conversations yeah. were very helpful in reinforcing my understanding about yeah. uh, some of the material. And uh, I mean, I, I tell people I would take those classes again uh, if I could. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, absolutely. You know, my retention of all that is. Did you did you record the lectures at all? I did, yeah. So I have. I'm gonna have to. to I'm gonna have to ask you to. So if I I need to brush up on some things, me be good. Well, I have some. I have some raw recordings. Okay. Do you so you didn't edit out all the cuss words and stuff? I didn't. I didn't edit out JP calling everybody idiots. Uh, routinely. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But that it, it was a fantastic uh, time. I have recordings too, but they're on tape. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't even have a way to play those. A little bit different of an of an experience that I had. Now, speaking of tapes, the very first uh, memory I have of of any explicit apologetics training was my dad and I on some road trip, listening to R.C. Sproul's tapes, uh, defending your faith. I think it, I think that's what it was called. Uh-huh. And. You know, yeah. it was just him going through logical arguments and explaining mm-hmm. how syllogisms work and giving arguments for God's existence. And that was very enlightening for me. And uh, there was something very satisfying about realizing that uh, you know, to go from premises that lead uh, indisputably to a conclusion, there was something just very, I don't know, uh, that resonated with me about that. And so I never lost that. Yeah. <clears throat> Now, um, how, how long did you uh, take to complete your degree there at Biola? A couple uh, of years? Let's see. I, well, I started January 2013, and I graduated fall of 2015. A couple of years? A couple so, and a half years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. that's a, You're taking a lot of classes at that time then. Yeah, it was a full you're load. Taking a full load, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, you... Uh, you probably noticed about the Biola curriculum that it doesn't really go in much to into detail much about politics. And mm. it seems like you had, did you think about that when you were there? Did you think about political implications or did, was, how did you process that? Did that even come up for you thinking about politics, political philosophy, constitutional well, law? I had, informally been interested in those subjects i didn't really search out classes on those subjects at talbot i know that uh there i know that, like scott waller teaches political philosophy or political science at uh at biola but in the at the graduate level i don't know that they have any classes on that i would have been interested in taking that if they had offered an elective um in political philosophy i would have been very interested in that because uh-huh. i i read um um, gosh, two treatises on government block. Uh, and I, it just amazed me that 
that was not required reading as a, as a young student or something, uh, you know, yeah. in Western civilization or something as a high schooler, I should have been forced to read, to read that book. I think, um, because Do you think you would have read it and actually appreciated it at that younger age. I think so. Uh, I, I mean, I was a, an avid reader, even as a young person, my dad read to me when I was young and I always had a love of reading. So I was one of those, those nerdy kids who enjoyed his poetry assignments and all that sort of stuff in high school. Um, oh. I mean, I probably, I would have grumbled about having to write a report on it or something, but I, I would have enjoyed the content, I think. And it is, it's a difficult read, but at the same time, the systematic thinking that he goes through explaining the conditions for forming a government, for dissolving a government are things that, mm-hmm. I mean, I doubt many of our politicians have even read and, uh, <laughs> and should, you know, because it's so fundamental to the, the origins of the country. Yeah. I mean... Maybe they read it, but it didn't stick, or maybe they were in a place where they read it in a highly critical environment and they felt like they mm-hmm. had to get on board with that highly critical environment. And maybe mm-hmm. they just didn't really, it didn't really sink in. What I don't know. Who knows? It's hard to know. Of course, it depends on which uh, politician you're talking about. That's right. Well, um, so. Did you grow up around guns? I did. Yeah, I tell people I came out of the womb with a gun in each hand. You know, we, I mean, we just, we grew up hunting and we didn't have land to hunt on, but we had a lot of friends who did. So they would invite us to come hunting. And I always loved being outside and doing that sort of thing. My dad was very keen to teach us how to handle guns safely. So we always had a great reverence for uh, the proper safety. And I mean, a lot of those things have stuck with me. You know, I, it's, Mm -hmm. Uh, when I take new people shooting, I'm very hyper aware about, you know, where the muzzle's pointing and all that sort of thing. Always shooting guns if it's loaded and, and those good, you know, basic principles. Um, so we grew up around that. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, my dad never bought me a BB gun because he didn't think I would, or my, my friends would treat it seriously, but he bought me a 22 rifle at, at seven years old. And, um, seven, you know, which wow. sounds counterintuitive, you know, it sounds like, why would you buy a, a child a rifle before you buy them a BB gun? But he knew that I would treat the rifle seriously. And it's not like I, you know, was able to just keep it in my room and do with it what I wanted. I mean, he had it, yeah. you know, but we would go use it. And um, I, so didn't get, I, I, I didn't get I didn't get a twenty two until I was twenty two years old. When I was seven, I got a seven millimeter because that's just how my parents mm. thought. And then at nine, I got a nine millimeter. Um, you know, when I turned forty, your gun just got weaker and weaker. Huh? Son of a gun! I got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. Well, if you don't know the calibers that we were just referencing, then too bad. So sad for you because you just missed out on a great joke. <laughs> How were you able to handle that 22? Did, you, well. shoot it? Actually, Did you shoot it right away? Yeah. Yeah. We went out and sh- shot it. Uh, I think I got it for Christmas. So I went out and we went and shot it that day or later that day. But um, you went outside in the backyard and you were like, well, <laughs> I went zero- in our backyard. Zero this zero these iron sights in. Well, the, we lived in a neighborhood, so unfortunately, that's why I wanted a BB gun so bad because I could use that in the neighborhood, but I couldn't use the rifle. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we went out and shot it, and I actually did one competition once, uh, a twenty-two competition. Um, there was a police station. Uh, it wasn't in Ruston; it was somewhere else, uh, maybe closer to Baton Rouge. They were having a competition, so I went and shot and ended up you know, placing at least. And, and that was a fun experience. You know, we were there, they let us shoot one of their uh, sniper rifles. I think it was a 308 or something with a massive scope. And it was, you know, 
500 yards away or whatever. That was a, that was a fun time, but I never got into uh, regular competitive shooting. Hmm. Uh, what, what, kind, what kind of 22 was it? I'm, I'm trying to picture the model. It was a Remington. I think uh, it was a polymer stock black uh, with a mm-hmm. little 10 round banana clip. Okay. Banana magazine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was like a. Hmm, trying to, was it a did you say it had a nylon stock or or was it a nylon was it it a was it a mohawk or something i don't know if they make those anymore it wasn't it wasn't a high quality one i mean i think it was was decent but it wasn't yeah i I know i can picture the one you're you're talking about um i forget what they call them i think it's named after an indian of some kind like a like a mohawk thing or anyway might be but yeah i know the one you're talking about I, i think i have actually have one myself the first one I got was a Marlin 60, Model 60. Hmm. Do you know those? Stock. They still make them. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think my grandfather had a Marlin 22, but uh, I've, yeah. I've never owned one. They're pretty standard. Um, they pretty much all look the same. The only difference uh, with some of the models is there's called a, there's a, one called a Glenfield Marlin 60. Mm-hmm. And a Glenfield has artwork on the stock. It's got a little squirrel etched into each side of the grip and it's got some like um what do they call it engraving on the stock Mm. so it's a little bit nicer um is it a lever action no no it's a semi-auto it's it's a it's a the magazine is a tubular magazine goes down the barrel Mm. underneath the barrel and it it i think the magazine holds like over 15 rounds and uh, it's it was fun it was a fun rifle i got that when i was in seventh grade and um you still have it yeah still have it yeah those are fun guns it's and i and i know my uncle had it for a while and i could tell that's my rifle because it's got the same nicks and bangs that i remember very careful i remember very clearly when it got those bangs i remember dropping it on the rocks in the in the mountains Hmm. we were up um, um, doing a little target practice, uh, on, uh, well, I'll say it. I, we were, I was in junior high and yes, we did have somebody there that was over 18. I can't remember how old he was. Jimmy, Jimmy Balden. Okay. For those of you who know me, it was Jimmy Balden that drove us up there. And Danny Balden and, and Danny Schisler, and we were up there on, uh, on Guanola Pass, and we hiked above Timberline, and we're up, and it's just a bunch of boulders up there. And there are deer, and there's, there's stuff up there, and there's with what we call whistle pigs. <laughs> and whistle pigs are what everybody else would call a marmot, and, and they whistle. And there's also these other little things called pica, and they're basically just like um timber they're mice that live above timberline and they live in these rocks and so we were shooting at the pica and there's tons of them i mean there's millions of these things i haven't seen yeah they're they're they are um i think they would be classified as a a pest or something like that but you had to be anyway did i did i have a small game license i probably did because I was, you know, 
I was a dork and I bought, I think I, I might, I don't know if I bought one, maybe, I don't know. I can't remember, but normally I had one. So did was it, was the activity I was doing legal? Probably it was probably legal, but I dropped my 22 rifle on those rocks and I got, it got the stock got a little bit banged up and there's a Nick on the barrel and it's been there ever since. And I know exactly where it is. And I'm like, ah, that's my rifle. Cause that's, mm-hmm. that reminds me of seventh grade or eighth grade, whenever it was, when I went up there, I think it was probably summer after seventh grade or something. And it probably, probably wasn't really that great to shoot with those rocks in the background because of ricochet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we switched to BB guns and, um, we actually had a lot more fun with the BB guns. Um, and, uh, and you, know you can do some damage to some Pico with, uh, the BB. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I would shoot mice in, in our garage with my BB gun. And I, I got, I, I remember getting, getting one right in the eyeball. And he twisted around. So anyway, we're totally horrifying told, people. I'm sure told that war story for a while. huh? <laughs> well, I, I just, these are the memories I have growing up. Just love learning yeah, about, I love hunting. Yeah. Learning how, if there's something about knowing that you could get, you could get something to eat if you had to. Mm-hmm. And our friend, uh, Jim, that was driving, he had a 223 bolt action. Um, and that thing was really fun, really dialed in. He had a scope yeah. on it, really nice. Anyway, um, so you're uh, you're growing up with guns. You serve in the military. Did you um, did you uh, continue the the tradition of gun ownership in California? Yes, yes, I have. Yeah, and <clears throat> growing up, my uh, grandmother had a cabinet full of of really old guns and uh they were so interesting because how, how cool is they, that they're very ornate and every time we go to visit i I just go straight to the gun cabinet and open it up and just kind of look at what was in there and you know they does smelled she, a certain way and does uh, she still have where what's her address does she still have it <laughs> yeah so, she's since passed away but we my dad has some of those guns and uh and i've actually done some research into some of the markings uh and there's some these really unique guns like this these german drillings you know with the three barrels the two shotgun barrels and then the one rifle barrel underneath uh and uh pretty interesting history on some of those yeah wow um but uh but yes the guns that i in fact own i I brought out to california and have had here and um certainly plan to grow the collection because they're just uh they're interesting you know it's like people some people are into watches some people are into cars i think it's fun to look at different types of guns and the craftsmanship Mm -hmm. there and stuff too and shoot them that aspect of the of gun ownership is fun because of the history. Uh, the yeah. cra- there is a lot of artwork and craftsmanship and engineering involved in the history of firearms. And, and old really- guns have a story, you know. They have markings on it. If they were, I have this mm-hmm. one. Uh, my in-laws got me a a Polish variant of the Mosin Nagant, and it's a shooter grade, which means it's it's kind of beat up. Uh, but it has all these interesting markings that came from the different armories that it was uh, refurbished in over the years and when it passed different hands, you know, and so to, to look up those marks 
teams in the history is sort of interesting because they all tell a little bit of a story. You wonder whose hands that, that rifle was in, you know? Mm-hmm. What got you into this book that Mike Austin wrote, this uh, God, Guns, in America? Well, I don't remember where I heard about it, but um, when I was at Louisiana Tech, I became involved with Students for Concealed Carry on campus and helped establish a chapter there. Did some lobbying um, on behalf of some campus carry bills. And then when I moved out to California, <clears throat> ended up becoming the first the California director and then the West regional director for a while, um, just kind of helping coordinate efforts a little bit uh, on a part-time basis and um, enjoyed doing that work, but eventually just got busy doing other things, doing, you know, grad school and, and other sorts of things. And so uh, kind of stepped away from that. But I, when I heard about the book, I was interested to read it because uh, it sounded like it was going to touch a bunch of subjects that I've been somewhat familiar with and was, I was interested to hear what um, Mike Austin had to say and uh, was glad to have read it. I, I read it and took a bunch of notes and began writing a formal review to it um, uh, and appreciate are you, something. Are you, are you uh, intending to publish this review? Potentially. Yeah. I'm not sure where it would go, but uh, anybody that's willing to take it, uh, well, not anybody, but uh, well, I'm are, open to publishing it. <laughs> well, what are your thoughts on, on the book? Well, I, first of all, I thought that, uh, I mean, Mike seems, I haven't met him in person, but he seems like a sincere believer and a, and a thoughtful guy. Um, I know that he's well-trained in philosophy, uh, which is why um, despite appreciating some of the, the criticisms that he has for, you know, the bad arguments and some of the attitudes that people have in idolizing gun ownership in, in the U.S., um, I, I thought there was quite a bit lacking with respect to the rigor um, and the consistency that one would hope to see in a book criticizing certain arguments and certain um, that beliefs that people have towards guns in the U.S. because it's something that I've spent a lot of time with and thought a lot about. Um, and there's the beautiful thing about the gun debate is that a lot of the arguments are based around empirical data that we have. Um, so there are principled arguments and then there are data-driven arguments. And uh, the reason I got involved with students for concealed carry in the first place was that to me, the data that I had been um, that I had encountered fully supported the idea that uh, adults who possess concealed carry permits already should be allowed to carry on campus if they can carry other places. And that's a, a very, you know, there are students for concealed carry is basically a one uh, item platform. And that's, and that's it. It's if you have a, if you're an adult that has a concealed carry permit, then if you carry other places, you should be able to carry on campus. But um, obviously my understanding of the gun debate uh, went beyond just that, that, uh, particular bit of activism. So I'm mm-hmm. um, getting far afield from your question about the book, but that's why I was interested to read the book. Right. And that's yeah, why yeah. I, I had a lot of thoughts about it as I did read it. Yeah. When you say that your thoughts about this, the, the debate go beyond that one narrow question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that you have insights that others miss if they just focus uh, narrowly on that one question? Or how would you put it? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Well, I just mean that the, the attempts by students for concealed carry are very, very narrow. It's, it, they, it, yes. it's useful from a point of activism because yeah, sure. you know, then, then you're not trying to, you know, uh, 
spread yourself too thin on different legislative grounds. Um, and it's one that I think is very easy to uh, to win people over on because mm -hmm. the, yeah, the data sure. just support people being able to do that. Um, you know, we have uh, universities that allow people to carry. We have states that some states that force their universities to allow people with permits to carry. Some leave it up to universities, and uh, you just don't see the wild west scenarios that that the opponents have typically forecasted. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> I think that my own interest in, in guns is, you know, beyond the superficial of just liking guns and that sort of thing is more rooted in the, the real value that the founders obviously saw in the right of individuals to own and uh, firearms. Because I think that what Austin does in the book is uh, attack soft targets, which are people that have this very paper thin view of uh, political philosophy and uh, maybe even theology and they talk in slang and, and shorthand about those things and so it sounds very uncareful and obviously there are people who have bad attitudes about it glorifying um, gun violence in a health, unhealthy way or something like that but uh, I think that a lot of times people in you know sort of on the right who are already familiar with the gun debate, just take for granted the, the significance that uh, the founders saw in the right to, to firearm ownership and speak in shorthand without making the careful distinctions about, you know, uh, certain aspects of the argument or the attitude towards those things. And so it, it kind of comes across, at least to Austin, as people, uh, you know, mixing their guns and religion and kind of getting out there with like a Bud Light in one hand and a, and a shotgun in the other and like shooting up in the air and saying, yay, America, or something like that. You know, that's kind of the, the, the person that he's attacking in the book. But, uh, and he makes a concession that not everybody thinks that way um, or that everybody has that attitude. But the, the tone you get of the book is that um, uh, it's, it's really trying to smuggle in attacks on what I think are in some cases valid arguments in favor of less gun control uh, restrictions and uh, by using Christian nationalism as sort of this, uh, this soft target, right? Because I'm, I'm critical of Christian nationalism too, but uh, I think you, if you have criticisms what's, about- what's, what's Christian nationalism? Well, he gives some specific criteria in the book. Um, I, I forget all of them, but one of the, the ones that I think is worth being criticized is, uh, let me see if I have it here. Says, are you uh, are you looking at your chalk, chalkboard that you have, made your notes on? That's right. Um, or, yeah, I have notes. Um, one of the tenets that he says Christian nationalists hold to is that conservative Christians are superior and have a right to rule over America. Now, obviously, I think that's wrong. I think that uh, you're saying that's not what the view says, or that's the no, view, no, that's the that, that's that's the what the view says, but the view is wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't done in-depth studies of what technically people would consider to be Christian nationalism from a sociological point of view, but I, I think that there are people that have that attitude, and I think that that attitude is wrong, uh, you know, whether you attribute that to Christian nationalism or not. But I, I, I mean, yeah, when when the term Christian nationalism gets thrown around, I, I, I it's so foreign from my normal my normal way of, of talking about things and thinking about things. I, uh, there are Christians and um, there are 
I guess, I suppose there are nationalists, but I'm not sure. I mean, usually I would think like kind of like the word African-American, you know, you just, mm. well, okay. I think I can figure out what that means from the, the from the words, but mm-hmm. Christian nationalism, it doesn't seem like you can figure what it means out just from the words. Um, uh, Christian and nationalist. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a nationalist and I'm not sure um, what the, uh, what the best argument against that would be, but um seems like uh you know if you're a red-blooded american you like america and i don't know if that means you like all nations but just like you're 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 happy that you have a nation that's fine and then you know how that fits in with christianity um you know um that's a that's a different question i guess but um yeah so it seems like it's such a a technical word i it's gets Mm -hmm. a little bit I think the, the, the number of people it would apply to in the hyper-technical sense is so small. I'm not sure. I don't know why you'd feel like you had to respond to the view, but anyway, okay. That's, that's me, but. Yeah. I mean, it it is tricky because I would consider myself a, I mean, having served in the the Marines where I swore to protect and defend the constitution, I really believe in that. And I value the, what we have here in this great experiment that we call America, because Mm -hmm. I believe it is the greatest uh, political system that has been tried in the history of the world. And uh, I know not everybody believes that. I mean, I believe that, but I, I don't think that. Well, you take yourself to be just describing the world you just you take yourself to be at the level of description like this all these other systems suck they they've led to bad outcomes and then ours has some problems but ours is the better one right i mean right and and in principle i mean because of the bill of rights and things like this but but i don't take that i don't take my allegiance to the united states to be greater than my allegiance to Jesus or anything like that, you know, and I think that uh, there are people who make those priorities fuzzy. And I think those are the people that Austin's attacking. And I'm, what I'm saying is I agree that there are people who have attitudes about that. They have their priority with respect to their theology and their, their uh, belief in the value of our political system, sort of mm-hmm. fuzzy, fuzzily defined, you know, those, those are, What's unique about our system is not really the Bill of Rights. The Soviet Union had a Bill of Rights. There's all sorts of really horrible places that have Bills of Rights. Mm -hmm. What's different about our system is the separation of powers. Right. The Soviet Union did not have a separation of powers. And what I notice is the left doesn't like separation of powers. And so what the Second Amendment embodies, that right there, is a separation of power in a way Mm. it's not the same thing that you see in the original constitution with article one two and three but you have a a separation between government which is consistent throughout the constitution I, i would say except for the case of slavery but but even then that was resolved you know in a way that was consistent with the rest of it Uh, thanks to the Republican Party and the Civil War. But 
that and by the way that had a lot to do with arming people arming making sure people can have arms you know so so the idea of the citizen versus the government that the the people versus the government that's the fundamental separation of power that that you need to make that's what places like the soviet union north korea people's republic of china china you know really bad places authoritarian regimes however you characterize them totalitarian regimes that that distinction between private and public um is so key in in my view and that's what i that's what i love about our system hmm. anyway i interrupted you sorry you were in the middle no, of that's right no and i think that you know going back to uh Locke's systematic argument for the conditions in which people form governments and mm -hmm. and the purpose for which those governments exist and you know giving criteria for the dissolution of those because if the government is ceases to serve the people then the people have he argues a, a right to dissolve it in a certain way and and that is the basis for the idea that there should be this check like you're mentioning on the federal government um, mm -hmm. or on the state broadly speaking and that check has to be one of force. And obviously none of us hope that we find ourselves in a situation where that ever needs to be exercised. But in principle, you know, if you, if you give that up, once you give it up, you never get it back. You know, and I saw a documentary years ago about, they were interviewing people in Australia about the, the gun ban there and everything. And a lot of those, those, you know, people that they interviewed were saying, Hey, once you give that up, just know you're never going to get it back. Uh, right. and, and I think that's why there's such a, an entrenched fight to resist gun control laws because people do perceive that it's a slippery slope. You know, in the book, Austin says, he kind of dismisses that and says like, oh, it's, you know, people say that it's a slippery slope, but that's just, that's not reasonable. Uh, despite later saying that there's no guarantee that a government will become totalitarian, uh, you know, and so it sort of undercuts itself there. But um, Anyway, I, I do agree that it's a very important check on governmental power in, in principle. You know, so what? In one of the well, related to that, yeah, and I, I mean, there's. Go ahead, go ahead, and uh, develop your point that you're going to make. Um, I've lost it. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too young for that, but go ahead. I I do appreciate that in the book. Mike, and I said this in my review when I reviewed it online, um, that that he uh, probably the best part of the book is the stuff that you can tell he used in his logic classes, probably. Mm. Um, it's chapter three of the book, which is just evaluating arguments and, and um, <clears throat> it displaying uh, one or two classic fallacies for the world to see somehow in lodged in the second amendment debate that we're having a lot of sloppy sloganeering and stuff going on and so i appreciate the slogan um the the etiology of a slogan and and getting underneath what's really at at the issue i, I like that i think that that's good and so if uh someone was to find the book i wouldn't buy it new but if you found it used at a bookstore um and you saw chapter three then that would be very profitable i think for you you could 
you could use that in a logic class or something like that. Um, so I appreciate that. I think it's a very useful introduction to people that aren't familiar with the gun debate because he yeah. talks, touches on a lot of different things. So it's a lot, there's a lot to begin thinking about there. I just, and I realize it's not an academic book or it's not designed to be. Uh, well, he does, he does have right? a PhD in philosophy from university well, of Colorado Boulder. He does. He does, he but he, does he's teach... not writing to academics. No, 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 no. He's writing I to lay he's people. trying but... to actually influence the voting, I think is what he's trying to do. Mm. Um, he does um, take the Democratic Party line on the, that side of things. So the, the certainly book, on the policy. Situation. Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely uh, on the Democratic Party side of that. Um, so I, did, I didn't want to cut you off. You were in the middle of saying, did you have a, any praise or, or criticism of the book that was negative beyond what we're talking well, about? What do you think the heart of the book is, if you had to say? I think the heart of the book is that he wants people to think about these things, but he doesn't make an attempt. He doesn't portray the book as being completely even-handed. You know, it's not a, here's the two sides, here's all no. the data, make your decision. It's a, we should be thoughtful. And I can see that, you know, there are some points here, but also, but you should think like this, right? Which is his right to do. Um, but because I felt like he gave such a cursory, uh, overview or provided cursory criticisms of some things that in my view do have very strong, uh, data driven arguments or principled arguments backing them, uh, I kind of, um, felt like it wasn't up to par with where, you know, somebody as a philosophy professor should, should have, uh, placed their rigor, right? So for example, you know, the intro to the book uh, by Rob Schenk begins with him expressing horror that there's a company he saw that marketed uh, case uh, holsters for firearms that look like different Bible cases, right? And presumably the horror there is because, you know, we're mixing these images of like this, this thing that could be used to, to commit violence with something uh, like the Bible, which, it, you know, the image there obviously is a, is a powerful one. But in, when you think about it, it, it should only be something that's shocking if you already think that people shouldn't carry firearms in church. If you've already come to that conclusion, then yes, of course it's shocking. But if you think that people, there are reasonable, uh, there, there are good reasons to carry a firearm in church and even ethical reasons to do so, then what do you care about the, the color or the make of the thing holding the firearm? You know, uh, the, the question should be, is it a practical tool? Does it meet its practical end? And, um, and so, you know, they make a lot of this imagery and it makes it sound like it's this, like there are these people who are trying to advance Christianity by carrying guns around or something. And that's just not, I don't think that's the attitude that most people have who do carry in church. Uh, I think the attitude most people have is I'm at church to worship Jesus. But if I was presented with a situation where I felt I could defend myself or somebody else who would otherwise be harmed or killed then I'd, I'd be willing to do that. I don't think most people are glorifying in that. Uh, I think there are those people and those people ought to be criticized for their attitude, but I don't think that's the majority. And he, he kind of makes it sound like people who carry in church shouldn't and have the wrong attitude about it. So I didn't like, I don't like that aspect of the book. To what extent do you think that data, you've mentioned data several times. Mm -hmm. 
to what extent do you think data is relevant to um, some of these policy questions? Um, I mean, he says he says you, he does believe you have a right to own a gun, but hmm. ironically, that's not really the the main debate um, that was settled by the Supreme Court. And he doesn't really evaluate those decisions very well. I don't, I, I, I was very disappointed by his, um, his treatment of the Supreme court decisions. Hmm. Um, Heller and, and McDonald. Yeah. There's nothing in there about the plaintiffs in those cases, for example. Right. Um, he sort of says, well, yeah, the Supreme court overturned precedent that was set before and, you know, in 2008, and that's and- actually not correct either. That's not, that's not correct as a matter of law. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably not clear. Um, mm. It's, that might be a better way to say it because yes, uh, it did overturn precedent in terms of the DC, the DC law. Yeah. That was overturned in Heller, mm. but um, it, 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 when he talks about prior Supreme court decisions, I mean, well, anyway, we'd have to get into the exact language he uses because I think he's, uh, he says it a little bit differently than that. But what I'm talking about is like, so, so let's say you're talking about the definition of marriage. And let's say that you, um, you're you a Democrat maybe and, and or you're a Republican on the side of the Democrats, like uh, Justice Kennedy was in Obergefell. And, Ober- and Obergefell was the decision in 2015, which redefined marriage. Hmm. And let's say that as a part of that strategy, that you go to loving versus Virginia and you talk about the decision that overturned uh, racial interracial marriage bans or something like that. It would be odd if you described that groundbreaking decision in loving versus Virginia as going against precedent and uh, you know, as if that's a bad thing. And right, not because paying, the intent is that and not paying any attention. Yeah, yeah. And not paying any attention to the plaintiffs in that case, what their what the harm was that they mm-hmm. they were suffering, that the law was addressing, that the, the decision I'm saying by the right. Supreme Court was addressing and redressing that harm. And uh, he's totally insensitive to these plaintiffs in this case. And I'm not sure if it's just ignorance or if that just is really his heart. You know, I have no idea because you can't tell from reading the book. But in the case of McDonald versus Chicago, it was a black man in Chicago who was told by the city of Chicago that you cannot have a gun, a handgun for self-defense. You must wait for the police. The police are your bodyguard. And he said, and the record is there. You can read it, you know. Hello. Right. Um, that what if it takes 20 minutes for the police to get there? Doesn't matter. Now, if you are on the four member descent of that, you're unfazed. And they were, you know, that's when the Democrats were on the four dissenting. Mm-hmm. The Republicans were the ones on the Supreme Court that that were on the side of the black man against the city, against the government who said he has to use the police. I mean, it's hard to even imagine that this is, this is happening, you know, it's 2010 
in America so long after the Civil War, so long after the Civil War put guns in the hands of black people so that they wouldn't be enslaved and they could fight against the Klan and reconstruction and all that stuff. Hmm. And it's just it those kind of details are utterly and totally lost on right. on Mr. Mr. Austin, Dr. Austin. Not to yeah, mention, I mean the NRA was founded by union officers in 1871. I mean they just fought this war. So what you were going to say? I was going to say that's one of the frustrating things about the book is that someone who isn't familiar with a lot of the background of these cases or the gun debate in general yeah. um, and just reads the book would come away thinking like, well, this makes a lot of sense. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. why do maybe, we have maybe, these crazy, I mean, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. Um, but there's so yeah. much more to the nuances of those cases and mm-hmm. uh, of the data, you know, again, a lot of the, like the policy decisions that he's, or the policy suggestions he's making are and should be driven by data. Uh, but I think a lot of the ones he makes are, fly in the face of uh, what the data actually say. Uh, but you, you get the sense in the book that, you know, he says he's not against the Second Amendment. He doesn't want to ban guns. But you get the sense that if, if for example, Heller was reversed or something, that he would just kind of shrug his shoulders and, you know, would well, be the, kind of the, the okay dissent, with The dissent in Heller, the dissent in McDonald versus Chicago, they, they, they thought they were on the side of the Second Amendment too. And they thought that the Second Amendment means that the government has a police power right to criminalize effective self-defense, which is exactly what those those plaintiffs were happened to them. They they were criminalized for defending themselves. Hmm. In other words, innocent conduct, paradigmatic innocent conduct, self-defense and and the right to self-defense is a right to effective self-defense. It's not merely a right to try and fail. <laughs> I mean, you do have a right to try and fail, right? But you also have a right to try and succeed in defending yourself. And that's, that's really the heart of the Second Amendment, which is what I, I, I'm on the side of Heller and, and McDonald. I think they got that part right. The court did. I think there's some problems in those decisions with some of the dicta, some of the stuff that Scalia said, for example. It's a little bit weird. Uh, it's not clear that it's it's consistent with. There's a consistent police power theory of the police power. Police power is a. You have to have a theory of the police power. Um, that's what I love about this guy that wrote. This guy at Georgetown, his name is uh, Randy Barnett, and he wrote this book on the Fourteenth Amendment, and he recently spoke at Cato about it. It's online. You could probably dig it up. Uh, recently in the last several months and he said you have to have a theory of the police power and i'm not sure that that i i I don't i know for a fact i don't agree with dr austin's theory of the police power and i'm not sure it's consistent with some of his what he says he believes in you know so i i think that it's wrong to criminalize innocent conduct and that's exactly where I think we disagree is mm-hmm. I think he, and, and when you try to baptize it in, in Christian language, I think that's even more horrific. Like as if this is what God would want, God would want you to be a criminal for defending yourself. 
I don't think the government has the power to make you a criminal for doing something that's innocent. Right. Self-defense is paradigmatically innocent. So I have two thoughts about that. One related to his policy suggestion that we repeal standard ground laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, He makes a lot of, you know, he does not like standard ground laws and he doesn't like them because he thinks it basically provides legal protection for people to exercise racial prejudices. Uh, And presumably he thinks that because uh, he cited, um, I think without a footnote that uh, whites in standard ground or blacks in standard ground laws, states with standard ground laws were killed at a much higher rate, like 11 times more than uh, whites in self-defense scenarios or something like that. Without noting that in many states, especially states like Illinois, because of Chicago and, and where there's very high crime in urban areas, mostly due to gang violence, that most of the murders are committed by people that are minorities, right? And that's just, you can look at the FBI data on this. Uh, which would explain a disparity like that, right? Rather than racial prejudice. Uh, now, standard ground laws don't allow people, they does not absolve uh, someone who's defending themselves from providing proof that they had a reasonable belief or feeling that they were in imminent harm. You know, all it means is that you don't have a legal obligation to retreat in those circumstances. Yeah. So I, I, I really don't understand the criticism there. And I don't think that the criticism that he makes is warranted based on what we do know about uh, standard ground laws and how you're still required to provide proof that you to yeah. a jury a jury that you had a reasonable expectation you were going to be harmed you know fatally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I appreciate that a lot. I I I think that's very well said. I, I appreciate you bringing up standard ground laws. Um, I I think um, the concern that Democrats have that a private person might harbor uh, racial prejudice against another private person is it's it's fine to have that on your radar but the bigger issue is how the government treats people that's that's really what the bigger issue is is how the government what it what the government is allowed to do to that individual and when you create a duty for a black person to retreat when attacked you open up the door for all sorts of racial prejudice and harm against that person and that per and it's even worse because that person is the victim that person is the one getting attacked. And now right. all of a sudden the person getting attacked has to, has a duty not to defend themselves in that, in that space yeah. without considering whether they can retreat. And I don't know why you would want to inculcate in black person that they have a duty to retreat from being attacked. Or duty. I mean, I'm I'm yeah, right here. Point. Here here I am. I I'm right here. Why do I have any duty whatsoever when I'm attacked to leave this space? I don't understand right. that. What 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 does that communicate to the person attacking me? Right. It's it's just weird. Yeah. It's just point, super yeah. weird. And so what you do is you you open up prosecutorial discretion, and there is a thing called 
prosecutorial discretion. And the word is discretion. The, I use the word discretion because it means a prosecutor can decide to prosecute you if you did not stand, if you did stand your ground. And a prosecutor might decide, I don't want to prosecute you if you didn't. And it could be based on race. And there's nothing you could do about it. Whereas if you take the criminal element away from the victim, okay, let's, let's base, I think Mike Austin gets this totally wrong. The basic distinction between criminal and victim at that, at base view, he, he has a, um, an adulterated view of what a criminal is and an adulterated view of what a, a victim is. The way I think of it is, if, if somebody is being attacked, that person is the victim, right? Okay? Not a criminal, a victim, but this mentality is no, they're a criminal. If they, if they have 11 rounds in their magazine, right? <laughs> so what are you talking about? 11 rounds makes me a criminal. What are you talking about now? If you, if you rack the, if you rack the magazine, 10 round magazine, you got one in the chamber and then you take that magazine out, put it 10th round in. See if you can follow this. There's still 11 rounds. <laughs> that's, that's, that is paradigmatic. You're an Eagle scout. You know, you are, you know, you're, you're a model citizen. You have one more round in there. Let's say your magazine malfunctions and you can have one more round in there. You're now a criminal. You, the victim, are a criminal. And it just it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I mean, that that's fundamentally it must be a difference of intuition. His intuition is, yes, that's 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 not innocent conduct. That's criminal conduct. My intuition is that's innocent conduct. The law should recognize that. And to the extent that the law doesn't recognize that the law is invalid. The law is I mean, not, re not really law. It's legislation, but it's not law. It's just really hard to understand how if having a magazine with too many rounds, let's say more than 10 mm -hmm. in California, is a misdemeanor, why somebody who's intent on committing a felony, namely murder, would care about violating, you know, committing a misdemeanor in the, in the course of committing a felony. It just doesn't, conceptually, it doesn't make any sense. Right. There's, there's no evidence to show that you know, it's a, it's so odd. It's like, it's like if I had to use a knife, God forbid, I had to use a knife in self-defense and there was legislation and the, the, actually knife legislation is almost, I think just as bad, badly incoherent. It's just that light knife laws are not uniformly enforced as much. Mm. Um, they can be selectively enforced. And I, that's why I'm, I'm very suspicious of knife regulations mm. because they're, they, they're just basically according to prosecutorial discretion, you could easily just abuse that along racial lines. And I don't think it's actually worse for the government to abuse something on racial lines. I think if the government is treating an innocent person as a criminal, it doesn't matter what race or what reason it is. That's always wrong for the same reason. You know, I, it's not only wrong when you do it to black people, it's wrong if you do it to anybody. Right. Anyway. So imagine if you had a serrated edge and, and, you're only allowed 10 serrations on that serrated edge, but yours has 11 manufacturer defect. And now in this encounter, 
I mean, you can imagine if you had to use a knife in self-defense, can you imagine? First of all, you're in total trauma. Yeah. You're not, you're not a sociopath. I mean, it's not like you're just standing there, you know, like wondering when you can play your finish your solitaire game, you're bloody. This is a disgusting encounter that you just had on every level. You're, you're a victim of a knife fight is, is you're going to get cut. Yeah. You're, you're, you're standing there and the police are counting the serration. See, why are they, why is that an aspect of the investigation? I don't understand. <laughs> you're missing, you're com- missing the spirit of the law. For sure. yeah, you're complicating it. You're complicating right. it. The same thing with if they take your pistol into evidence and they're trying to see how many rounds you can fit, fit that that's again, that's missing the point. It's like, hmm. it's like, if it's like, if you get, here's an analogy. You're, pull, you're pulled over for running a stop sign, let's say. Maybe, well, it's not a perfect analogy, unlike all the other analogies I have, but actually no, there are no such thing as per- perfect analogies. Um, My analogy of the Trinity is perfect. <laughs> yeah. Let's <laughs> say you're, you're pulled over for, for um, some kind of traffic offense, like running a stop sign. And now the guy's like, how many gallons of, of gas can you fit in your gas tank? Is it only 10? And you're like, um, actually, it's a standard model. We haven't blocked the gas tank to only 10. It, it was designed to hold 13 gallons, and I never blocked the gas tank to 10. So it's now an a- aspect of the investigation of whether wh- how I remember the investigation has to do with me running a stop sign, right? Very clear. Now we're inquiring. Now the government is intruding and inquiring on such things as how many things that are totally irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And you're all you're doing is you're just giving the government more discretion to hurt innocent people. And that's going to hurt. You, if you do that, it's going to hurt innocent people. Well, that's the scary thing about a state like California, where if you yeah. did need to use a firearm in self-defense, mm-hmm. you better believe the state would be looking at all of those technicalities. And, mm-hmm. you know, oh, was he sure. within a thousand feet of a school? Yes, he was. Well, then, mm, you, yeah. Know, yeah. you know, that's he's going to jail, one. even though everything else circumstantially justified the use of force. Yeah. You know, those sorts of things just totally miss. You're not getting the bad guys. You know what I mean? You're, you're no. You're hurting the people that you should be protecting with the law. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if we could talk about the central thesis of his book. If you yeah, forget about sure for that. Um, he wants to construe uh, a third in between view um, as being the right way, being a peace builder in between just war theory and being a pacifist, right? And he says he's not a pacifist, but if you listen to his interviews, he says he's basically as close to a pacifist as you can be without being one. And by the way, I, I respect people who are pacifists. I think that it's a it's a consistent position. I, I don't agree with it. I think pacifists fail to appreciate the distinction between self-defense scenarios and the proper context for martyrdom, because I think those things aren't incompatible with one another. But uh, what's interesting is that the way he describes peace building to me sounds just like just war theory properly exercised, right? So he basically says just war theory says you have to have certain conditions to justify violence in the context of war or self-defense, but most just war theorists don't adhere to those. And so 
it seems odd that you would justify criticism of a philosophy by pointing to cases in which it's been abused. But, uh, you know, Augustine was, is, is known as one of the founders of uh, the thinking that underlies current just war theory. What, what, what was his first name? What was that guy's first name that you mentioned? Augustine? What was his first uh, name? Street? Uh, I think it was Street. Uh, Street Augustine? I'm not following you. ST dot St. Augustine. You ever mailed a letter? <laughs> yeah. You ever mailed I've never mailed okay. a letter. Sorry, I had some delayed intelligence on that one. Yeah, I got you. Is it Saint? Uh, oh, that, oh yes. that would actually make sense. Actually, it actually makes more sense. <laughs> uh or Augustine. Oh, that's on... why my professor was looking at me weird when I called him drive instead of doctor. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> actually his first name was aurelius aurelius augustine there you go yeah okay so if you like for example in uh, a letter to boniface letter 138 augustine says i think it's actually Tom. bony face actually oh there you go well, it was his, his learning, it was his, learn new things every day it was his nickname from childhood and then it just <laughs> stuck bony face yeah, it certainly would have been if he was in third grade uh but uh I have it here. Augustine says to him, he says, peace should be the object of your desire. War should be waged only as necessity and waged only that God may by it deliver men from the necessity and preserve them in peace. Now, that sounds a lot like what Augustine or what uh, Austin describes as being a peace builder. And so I wonder why he's trying to eke out this third view. I, I just don't understand why he doesn't just say we ought to be just war theorists and we just ought to be clear and consistent about the criteria for exercising violence. Um, so yeah, I don't know what that's a very thoughtful. That. That's, that's thoughtful. Uh, um, I, I don't know what he would say to that because he's not here. And, you know, I mean, it's like, it's right. hard to, it's hard to talk to the guy when he won't come on your show or right. your podcast. I don't really call it a show, but, um, um, you know, I, I maybe we'll get him to come on and, and respond to that at some point. But uh, he um, I'd be interested in that. I, I don't know um, to what extent um, he's just he's got a certain audience in mind and they happen to be like a lot of them are Democrats or something or, or they're Republicans that are um, on the Democrat side on this. But I, I don't know. I'm not sure how much street cred that that pacifism has for those people. I'm not sure, but I, I noticed that yeah. too. I, I think it's a good way to put it that maybe it's just good old fashioned theory of violence in the, in the Christian tradition. There's lots there. I mean, yeah, I mean, right. there's, it seems like perfectly relevant, but and I, I agree. I agree with him. We ought to have the right attitude towards those things. We ought to, ought to be cavalier about exercising sure. violence or glorifying that or anything like that, for sure. I'm, but, I'm much more concerned about the attitude that the government has, though. Hmm. That's that that's that's always my central concern. Is I, I'm I'm you know I'm a pastor to the government. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's great. You know, I mean, we should spur each other on to live more uh faithfully sure but man when you're talking about policy application you're talking about empowering the government right 
And that's, that's really what bothers me is, is what kind of powers are you giving the government and why? And, and uh, maybe you don't think that there's like a, a slippery slope that's, that's real, Hmm. but um, the, the history of the world in terms of governments, it's not a pretty picture. You know, most fail, most fail. And, um, it, it, in any given time slice, it's, it's sometimes hard to decide what, what the direction is like, for example, the United Kingdom or Canada or Australia, what direction are they going? You know, what is their theory of the police power? Right. Um, how, how's that affect flourishing in those communities? And, I'm not optimistic about the direction that governments tend to go. Yeah. When they're given uh, the power to take people's firearms or, uh, or, you know, just another government or, to, or to prevent you from under threat of prosecution to, pre- to prevent you from actually using it in public. Exactly. To, if, carrying it, you know, being prepared, being prepared. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. And, and by the way, I think uh, a culture where, people are not criminalized for being prepared to uh, effectively respond to immoral violence. It's another criticism I have. I'll get to in a second. Don't let me forget coming back to immoral violence, as opposed to gun violence. I don't like the term gun violence. Um, Because gun violence isn't worse than other kinds of violence. Well, let me, let me get back to that. Um, I forget what I was going. I guess I could just talk about it right now. Sorry, I didn't mean to derail. No, that's all right. It's fine. Uh, Gun violence. He uses that term, starts starts using it right away. Um, Violence per se is not immoral. Um, Unjustified violence. Yeah, I think what he means is immoral violence. That's what he means. Mm hmm. Um, but immoral violence would be immoral violence, whatever is used, right? Uh, the problem being I murdered by a gun is not worse than being murdered by a knife. <laughs> I mean, not morally speaking, not, I, not to the person getting murdered. Uh, I don't right. think in the eyes of the law, it should be worse either. Right. Um, I, 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 here I am showing my hand about hate crimes. I think that their hate crimes are very popular in certain populations i don't see that it does anything to fight crime though i don't um i mean what's what's the problem with a so-called hate crime is it uh is it is the problem that the person is murdered or is it the problem of the reason the person is murdered um to me uh if it's murder it's not justified right it's it's not it's immoral violence right so, so what if it was a, a deeply held belief that certain races are inferior to other races? I mean, that, what does that have to do with the fact that this other person suffered immorally you know, from an immoral, from immoral, not suffered immorally, but suffered due mm-hmm. to some immoral violence. Anyway, I, I just don't see that. Is it better to be murdered by somebody who loves you? <laughs> it's love violence. I mean, I mean, is that illegal? We should make love violence illegal. Love crimes, you know. No, mommy, no. Remember, you love me. Remember, 
it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it's murder. Murder is murder. When you read right. the 10 commandments, it doesn't say, and it's especially, especially you shouldn't murder someone. It's like extra. And I'm being extra serious here, guys, Israelites. Okay. Not only do not murder. Okay. We got that. But extra califragilistically seriously you should not murder someone based on race doesn't say anything like that um you know stay, same with stealing thou shalt not steal but also extra no don't you know it's just just go it's simple just go back criminal victim criminal victim that's it right you have immoral violence you have so when he says gun violence, the problem is, is that analytically that includes self-defense with a firearm, because if you're if you're defending yourself, that's a violent encounter. Right. Right. It's violent every time a gun goes off. It's it's just violent. Doesn't mean that it's bad. The question is, is it moral or immoral violence, not I, whether it's violence? Yeah, I think so. Sometimes yeah. we use the term violent to mean just bad. And now, for, well, that's for, that's that's a that's that's a bias for pacifism. Right. So for someone who's a pacifist, I could understand that construal. But for somebody who's avidly or explicitly not a pacifist like he is, I don't understand. Uh, yeah, that's a, a fair a deliberate, a, del a deliberate rhetorical move. You know, I don't understand mm -hmm. the use of, of that because it's not careful uh, in the ways that you're pointing out. And this is yeah. this is the problem right. with a lot of firearm statistics. If you do cross country uh, comparisons of um, homicides and things like that, a lot of countries don't distinguish between justified homicides and and murders. Uh, they just say this is the total homicide rate. Right. Um, and so it makes it difficult to know, you know, what's really happening. Um, right. Right. In certain circumstances. That's right. And it, so, not to. To bleed too far into something else here but you know related to that i mean obviously john lott has done a lot of work you know over decades uh on the subject and yeah. he spends in the book three pages dismissing all of that you know he, he cites yep. uh hugh la Follette in his book and yeah. some other things but i just thought that just seems irresponsible to take somebody who spent decades of doing peer-reviewed research mm -hmm. and maybe there are some challenges there that you know need to be worked out uh yeah. but I, I don't think you should make a habit of dismissing people who've spent their life doing a certain thing and, and say like, Oh, well, some people disagree. So you should just discount that. You know, it's the same way that Thomas soul is treated. Thomas soul has hmm. debunked so many of these fallacious ways of thinking about race and economics long time ago, him and, and, and actually Walter Williams as well. Hmm. Um, and you know, he's just pretty much ignored, you know, I don't know. Right. Uh, how else to explain it except for there's a bias toward Democrats and higher education. And I think that um, I think that's a simple explanation, but I think it's a it's not it's the simple explanation is to be preferred if if it's the best one. It seems like it's the best one. I don't I don't see a better one. that's more complicated. But um, I think he just um, now I know he is pro-life uh, on abortion. Mm -hmm. So he. um <clears throat> He's got the right answer on that, but uh, yeah, again, he's not here to defend himself. I, I, my my thought on like uh, Democrats is they're typically um, 
the way I've been treated is they're dismissive. They don't really respond. They they're just dismissive. And, mm -hmm. um, and there's a group think there's a bias. There's a pretty steep bias. Um, well, that's the whole underlying aspect of the cancel culture, right? Yeah, that's right. That's I don't right. agree with you. So I'm just not going to let you talk. Yeah. You know? When I was, and I don't uh, think that's his attitude, uh, certainly, but I mean, no, I no, no, there's, he's not there's that far. A, yeah. No, 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 no. He's, he's not that far, but I think he doesn't like Republicans and he's trying to move Christians away from the re Republican. I think he wants Christians to be more Democrat. I think, I think certainly get that sense. Yeah. In this book at least. But, um, so I think, um, I'm just calling it like it is. I'm not, I'm just describing it. I'm not really, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I think uh, it's, to, I'll, I'll give him another compliment. I, I think, because I don't want people to just think I'm just beating up on Mike Austin here. Yeah, same here. Um, I'll give him another compliment. I think that he had some excellent training at Biola and it's, it's hard to take the training that we got at Biola, just amazing training and epistemology and metaphysics and philosophy of mind. And you had symbolic logic. That's cool. Um, back in my day, Rob Coons was teaching symbolic logic. So mm. I, I, I uh, audited that class. That was uh, Pick Advances advisor at Texas. So mm. you, you had, uh, I had, I had Yoda, you had master Luke, ironically, <laughs> um, but it, you know, master Luke great. was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. People call me master. <laughs> Luke. Well, when I, uh, it, it's hard to go from that great training to figure out what do you think about politics and constitutional law? And this is definitely politics and constitutional law. And and how do you, how do you integrate that with your Christian faith? Um, I think Biola was scared to wade into those waters for accreditation reasons. And there's all sorts of other reasons why be, might be afraid of that. You mean even teaching political philosophy? Seems I, like think, they I think so. That. I think so. I, I think um, it just because I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm I might be wrong. I might be totally wrong. I mean, maybe it was just that it's just a matter of, you can only do so many things really well. And we're going to focus on what we do really well. Hmm. And I don't know, but I think that he probably went from Biola to Boulder and quite a um, contrast. I'm sure. Yeah. He had to figure out all of a sudden, although I've heard Mike humor has guns. So I don't know. And he teaches at Boulder. I haven't talked to Mike humor. I did like his book on perception and skepticism. I, I listened to a lecture he did, uh, a debate yeah. with Michael Shermer, but I, I haven't uh, read any of his work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he has guns. So anyway. He said but, so um, in, the, in the debate. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. somebody asked him and, and he declined to say which uh, or what kind. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. That's evidence that he has guns. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, it's, it's tough to integrate this stuff with your Christian faith and do, do so in a compelling way that avoids some of the claptrap, the worst of politics. And mm. so, I, I mean, the, 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 
compliment that I would give uh, Mike Austin is that he did wade into that and he tried. And, and I think that he has a couple, uh, he has at least one good chapter in there. Chapter three. Um, I, I was a little disappointed, like you said, in the, uh, the, yeah, he, he knows how to make distinctions. He's a, he's professionally trained philosopher. He can ratchet down on these distinctions. He knows how to analyze terms and he's just using gun violence just the same way that Democrats do. And, and he's not being careful with how he's using the terms and, and, seems like he right. uh, a lot of the policy stuff gets kind of smuggled into assumptions that are not critically laid bare right so that's you know but um and then here's an unfair criticism of his book perhaps but i almost threw the book away because it doesn't have any pictures in it <laughs> and um that's fair i you know, that's why I don't have very many Bibles left. I've got my, I've got some, I got a precious moments Bible. <laughs> it's got, it's got pictures in it. So, but anyway, you've got a, you've got a, a version <laughs> of the message with the text blown up real big. So it's almost like pictures. Well, well, Matt, um, is there anything else you wanted to cover before we take off for today? No, not necessarily. I mean, I don't have an agenda or anything like that. I'm you know, grateful for the opportunity to chat about it. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure a lot more we could get into here. And I'm sure if Mike were talks about some of these things to say the least, but hopefully he'll join you at some point on the show. And uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And uh, I've listened to some great interviews that you guys have had in the past. And so keep well, doing what you. you're doing. I really appreciate that, Matt. Thanks for coming on and we'll catch you on the flip side. Happy Easter. Sounds great. Happy Easter. <laughs>